0: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.
1: We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast.
2: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast
1: Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 151.
1: On today's show, we talk about ancient shipwrecks, a rediscovered African American cemetery, and Neanderthal impacts on the Pleistocene landscape.
2: Let's dig a little deeper. Welcome to the show, everyone. How's it going? Pretty good. So, not that we'd re-record these like at the last minute or anything, but it is Christmas Eve. So, for anyone <laughs> that cares, Merry Christmas.
1: Yes. Yeah, you know when it's the holidays, sometimes time gets away from you. <laughs> uh,
2: plus, I've been sick all this week. I get sick yeah. like once every couple of years. I feel like like really sick, and thought I had COVID Monday took a in-home test I don't know how accurate those are with whole Omicron coming out but I didn't really have COVID symptoms other side some some lung stuff going on but yeah that only lasted like a day and now I just had like a cough and mm-hmm. stuff for the week so yep anyway wasn't really conducive to recording
1: no definitely not I yeah. bet your voice still sounds a little
2: a little low. different yeah yeah, yeah. I'll be editing out coughs throughout this entire episode (laughs) for your benefit.
1: Yes, probably.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So we got three articles that have nothing to do with Christmas or the holidays. Nope. And in fact, we talked about it. There's so many articles out there that already basically summarize current thinking and archaeology and history around different aspects of, say, Christmas, this holiday season, you know, that whole thing. Didn't really feel the need to, I guess, rehash that.
1: No. And I think we mentioned in the last episode, there's like a lot of pseudoscience around it too, where, where like people supporting the Christian biblical version of events kind of, they bend the archeology span to their will and to show what they want. So we just don't even want to jump into that, that sphere at all.
2: Instead, let's talk about shipwrecks.
1: Yeah, totally. Shipwrecks are awesome.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So, <laughs>
1: I mean, maybe they weren't awesome when they happened,
2: uh, but you know,
1: they're awesome now. <laughs> probably not.
2: So we're going to talk about two shipwrecks that were reported in, in one article, basically. And they were found by the Marine Archaeology Unit of the Israel Antiquities Authority. And, mm-hmm. I mean, what was found, we'll just get that out of the way, hundreds of silver and bronze coins, silver and gold rings, rare gems, figurines, and bells.
1: It's like a treasure trove. It's exactly what you think of when, like... You're you're watching a movie about a shipwreck discovery yeah. or something, right? Like this is it?
2: I know, pretty crazy. Yeah. So, it was found off the coast of a place called Caesarea. Basically, it looks like it literally translates to like Caesar's place. Yeah. I'm not really sure. Yeah. You know, um, that's how it's That's how it's spelled. Mm-hmm. The cool thing is these shipwrecks are basically right next to each other, but they went down. Uh, over a thousand years apart from each other. Yeah, yeah, so crazy. So these they went down. One was 1,700 years ago during what they called the Roman period, and one was 600 years ago during the Memluk period, which we'll talk about a little bit uh, later. Mm-hmm. And they were found in the depth of only 13 feet.
1: I know. Isn't that crazy? But I was reading that it sounds like they, they might have been anchored there, like probably to wait out a storm or something and the storm just sort of did them in so it didn't it didn't work they hoped but it didn't work and i guess this must have been a place that was sort of a safe harbor for lots of storms throughout the years which is why you get such wildly different shipwrecks
2: well yeah another thing that the article mentioned that said you know sailors basically should know that if you if you anticipate a storm and you park in shallow water like you're gonna get hammered Right. Oh really? You need to be in deeper water. Oh, yeah, because your ship can ride the swells of deeper water, mm-hmm. uh, but the crashing waves. Oh yeah, and, and and the potential for grounding is just terrible. So they're not really sure you know, why they would have chosen to park here knowing a storm was coming. Um, maybe unless, it came
1: too quickly or something. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe they
2: were, you know, being held for COVID-1 <laughs> and uh, they were just anchored out there and then a storm happened. Like quarantined you know. or something. Yeah, they were quarantined. Yeah, yeah. maybe.
1: Well, in yeah. the the water today is 13 feet, but it might have been different at that time, correct?
2: It could have been a little bit different. Probably not, not a lot. whole lot. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so the archaeologists were taking a look here and I don't know what prompted them to, to go there it was probably found uh, probably bits and pieces had been mm-hmm. found but the ships were there uh, and all their stuff was there but uh, aside from all the jewels and things like that they also found some personal effects and those included an inkwell a bronze figurine in the form of an eagle a figurine of a Roman pan- pant- <laughs> pantomimus pantomimus in, <laughs> pantomimus I don't really know in, in, <laughs> a co- in a comic mask numerous bronze bells uh, pottery vessels Dozens of large bronze nails, lead pipes from a bilge pump. Uh, a bilge pump, that's super cool. Yeah. Uh, and a large iron anchor. So that's all really neat. Yeah, um, lots of,
1: those are really unique things to find, I yeah. think, especially with the shipwreck. So that's cool that they found all that.
2: Well, it's pretty clear that, like, Things were not taken off the ship. Either people were just not on there and maybe there was a skeleton crew like on yeah, watch yeah. while it was sitting at anchor, or everybody just bailed and everything went with it. Yeah. You know, when they crashed down. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, if it's in such short water or so shallow water, there would have been people that could easily go down thirteen feet and start picking stuff off stuff up off the bottom. So
1: Oh I'm yeah, like salvage after the Yeah, I'm wondering
2: why with so many precious things on board. Like, why didn't they go try to find it? I don't know. Well, but 13
1: feet. Okay, so 600 years ago and 1,700 years ago, 13 feet, like, you got to have an expert diver who can hold breath for a really long time. Yeah, that's par for
2: the course of people that lived by the sea back then.
1: I know, but I think that that is kind of a big ask. They probably salvaged what they could, but, you know, they weren't able to get all of it.
2: Yeah, probably. Yeah, who knows what else was there, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, some other cool things they found. There was a red gemstone for setting in a what's called a gemma ring. Hmm. The carving of the gemstone shows a lyre. In Jewish tradition, this is called a kinor David. It's K-I-N-O-R. So i do not from pronouncing that right, but hmm. kinor kinor David. Okay. It Obviously translates to like King David. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've so never heard of that. That's cool. That's kind of neat. Also, they found a thick octagonal gold ring set with a green gemstone that is carved with the figure of a young shepherd boy dressed in a tunic and bearing a ram or a sheep on his shoulders. And that was like the coolest thing in the whole article, I think, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It was just so neat. The ring itself is beautiful. Like I would totally wear it today. And then the the gemstone having that carving on it. So like it's sort of like a big oval shape. And then mm-hmm. it's this really intricately carved figure in the center of the oval. Really, really beautiful. And I wonder, well, I guess the, the image represents like the good shepherd it's one of the earliest and oldest images using christianity for symbolizing jesus Mm
0: -hmm.
1: i don't remember i don't know if they mentioned which shipwreck that one came from or if they could tell if the shipwrecks were that close together but i suppose it would have had to have been the mamluk one right
2: i mean possibly why not 1700 years ago
1: yeah yeah i guess that could be the the roman one yeah so Anyway, it's really beautiful. I, If you have a chance to check out the links, you should definitely go look at the picture of it. It was, yeah. it was really cool looking.
2: So a little bit on the Memlook period, because I'd never heard of it. Yeah,
1: n- yeah, that was new yeah. to me too.
2: And this is going to be a really quick bullet point, high level overview of what that was, because in different areas, it kind of meant different things, like mm-hmm. variations on this same theme, right? And and what what this period really meant. But the Mamluk period refers to Mamluks and there's a or Mamluks there was another pronunciation and there's a a few different ways to say it but they were basically non-Arab ethnically diverse basically anybody who's not an Arab Mm -hmm. uh, slave soldiers and freed slaves Mm. okay that was this class of people basically they were assigned military and administrative duties uh, and served Arab dynasties in the Muslim world typically okay They were really powerful in, like, Egypt and, uh, you know, in other places. But Mm. uh, this concept of the, like, slave soldier and and basically slave soldier being able to ascend to different ranks and have certain powers, but still essentially a slave. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you want to look at it. Reminds me of
1: Game of Thrones a little bit. (laughs) I know. Yeah. I
2: mean, current military... You're not a slave necessarily, but you are told where to live, where to go, yeah, what to do, yeah. and it's
1: a job. But you, you make
2: a choice to be that way. Yeah. Whereas these people didn't make a choice. Yeah. you know, they probably were into this, and then, and then were were put in the system, and it's just like, okay, this is my job now. Mm-hmm. But this whole period of of basically doing this endured for <laughs> nearly a thousand years. From the 9th to the 19th centuries. Yeah. Yeah, so... That's a long time. Yeah, that's insane. In some areas, this was like a, a knightly ruling ca- class, similar to like British knights kind of things. Oh. Um, so they're they're basically, you know, against sworn soldiers, mm-hmm. uh, but higher ranking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was in various Muslim societies. And some even uh, attained the rank of sultan hmm. in the area. Sultan is kind of like a governor. Yeah, um, right, And right. There were other ranks too, like imam and, and others that are a little bit lower in the Muslim societies, but... It's so crazy to me that they could attain these political and influential ranks and yet they're still kind of basically slaves.
1: Yeah, you but they it sounds like they're slaves more to the government and the society rather to yeah. an individual or a person. And because of that I think it it means that they can they they were able to grow into higher ranks. I guess that kind of makes sense in some yeah. ways. So, yeah, that's cool. And, or Well, maybe it wasn't great for them, but it is interesting. And it's interesting that they had a ship full of really valuable items that they lost in this, mm-hmm. sh- this storm whenever it happened as well.
2: Right. All right. Well, let's go from slaves on that side of the world to slaves on this side of the world and their unfortunate descendants and our treatment of them in certain places in regards to a forgotten black cemetery found in Florida. Back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code TAS.
0: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully, it ends up in your hands.
2: Welcome back to The Archaeology Show, episode 151, and we are talking about cemeteries.
1: Yeah, I love cemeteries.
2: <laughs> yeah, except for sad cemeteries.
0: Yeah,
1: I don't like when they're sad. I guess they're <laughs> kind of sad, depending on your perspective of the cemetery, but yeah. I do love a good amble through a old cemetery,
2: but
0: yep.
1: moving on.
2: <laughs> I don't amble enough.
1: Yeah, I know. I don't know. That's what you do in Cemetery Zone. Amble. <laughs> Don't shake your head at me. Amble,
2: what a dumb if word. you guys
1: can only see how he's shaking his what head a, at me. What a dumb
2: word, amble. <laughs> Makes no sense. Anyway, <laughs> words lost all meaning. All right. So we're in Clearwater, Florida. This is in Tampa Bay. Mm-hmm. Tampa Bay is just a sprawling metropolis of a city followed by many, many, many small neighborhoods yeah. and cities around it yep. and towns. And Clearwater is one of those. And at the site of a downtown office building... An unmarked African-American cemetery was found.
1: Mm-hmm. Found or rediscovered, I would say, right? Well, I mean, it was
2: found yeah, and rediscovered.
1: People knew it was there, and they knew it was there not that long ago, too.
2: Yeah, actually, uh, that's the thing. There's not a lot of people that are alive right now that were really, truly aware of the cemetery. Mm-hmm. Uh, there. I mean, obviously, there were people that were born around there. We're going to talk about one in a minute. But they were like young and didn't care about cemeteries, right? Yeah. So all the old people that did care about cemeteries and buried people there are long since gone.
1: Right. So this is probably two generations removed, right? So you don't, maybe you don't know anybody buried there, but you know of somebody who knew somebody that was buried there, basically. I
2: mean, we're in the time period where, unless you have direct written evidence of it, like there's not very many people that actually were aware of and are like, hey, where's the cemetery? Yeah, yeah. And there's some other shenanigans that happened too. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But. Mm This cemetery contains hundreds of graves. They think it's actually not been completely excavated. Right. So, and it's at least the fourth abandoned African American cemetery that's been rediscovered in recent years in Florida. So, mm-hmm. basically, in Florida and, and probably other parts of the South and and honestly the Eastern United States in the 1950s, the mid 1950s, the the post war era, it was a very prosperous time. People seem to have lots of money. They're making babies mm-hmm. and they're boom. you know having a good time. So. They were a lot of people moving to Florida, a lot of people moving to the Tampa Bay area. It's a very sought after place for people to be uh, because it's you know right on the Gulf of Mexico. Yep. It's got beautiful sandy beaches and it's just a, a nice place to go. Yeah. So as they were needing space for white people to come down, they started moving black neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that would get moved in a black neighborhood is a black African-American cemetery.
1: Well, a church, actually. The church would move. Yeah. Yeah. And the cemetery wouldn't necessarily go with it but they were building on that land so what happens to the cemetery when you move the church yeah it just gets paved over
2: yeah and there's records of the developer who who originally developed in this spot Having been told, hey, you got to move this cemetery. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, OK, we'll get on that and we'll move the cemetery. You yeah. know, they were going to move the graves. And and apparently some of them were moved. Mm-hmm. right? Some of okay. them were moved. and But then they just kept finding them. And, yeah. and I, I guess I get the impression the cemetery wasn't like super well organized to begin with. It was yeah. probably really old. Yeah. And, uh, you know, old cemeteries, it doesn't matter where they are or what's going on. Unless they're like the Queen's Cemetery, it's just like there's sections of it that are super old and not probably in the best condition.
1: Yeah, it kind of you know? jumbled together. Yeah. So I have a little bit of experience working on oh, yeah. like cemetery recovery, basically. I worked on this project in New Jersey where we were moving a, a cemetery from the 1800s, 17 and 1800s.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they knew it was there and it had been paved over just like this situation. But... Um, it was in the, the early 2000s, of course, and they are subject to the laws that we have today that don't allow you to just ignore a cemetery that's under the yeah. ground. It forces you to excavate it and move it. And in this case, it had been paved over. And what they did when they paved it over is they just like bulldozed the headstones down too. Oh, and the, at, at one point in the the excavation that I was a part of, they uncovered like a bulldozed pile of headstones from the Mm fifties when they originally paved over that, that cemetery. Oh man. Like they, I I don't, they were just, they were in terrible condition. They were in chunks and yeah. So like that's how they were treating it back in those times before they had laws that required them to, to treat these sort of resources in a, in a certain way.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. So Whatever prompted this, basically CRM project. I'm guessing some, you know, some renovations were happening or something was happening, mm-hmm. and uh, archaeologists came in there and they first used ground penetrating radar to see what was what was under the ground, and that's how they started finding graves. Mm-hmm. Right, they started finding a lot of graves. Yep. And archaeologists actually believe that several hundred people may still be buried uh, there. And when I say there. It's a parking lot. Yeah, it's literally under the parking lot that right. they're finding these people mm-hmm. uh, with ground penetrating radar. GPR is is really good at finding graves. Mm-hmm. You know, they have Very a good. really solid signature to them, especially graves that you know, to be honest, aren't that old. Now, yeah. one thing that surprises me is Florida is like pure sand,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: sand is terrible at organics. Yeah, it just it's acidic mm-hmm. and it just tears things apart. So I'm kind of surprised that even graves that are You know the fresh ones that would have been put in in the fifties before it was uh, destroyed. Those would have been the newest graves. Uh, I'm I'm honestly surprised that uh, some of the older ones even are represented in Mm -hmm. the in the GPR signature anymore but probably the hardware and stuff on the caskets. Yeah, that's what
1: I was just going to say. I can call back to my New Jersey cemetery recovery experience again and we would find what's called the coffin line Mm -hmm. and you would get this dark outline like in the shape of a rectangular box and you could follow that outline all the way around with your trowel and then you would know that you had the the boundary of the coffin and that there were probably remains of some sort inside. But depending on the soil, it's very individual. Like the soil could be really great in one spot and have great preservation and by great i mean less acidic probably sure and then very acidic and very poor preservation in other areas and you would just find like pieces of the larger more dense bones like the skull and maybe sometimes pieces of the pelvis and that was it Mm -hmm. so yeah like it it really depended on the soil and but there were things that you could find the coffin line was always there because wood just lasted a little bit better Mm -hmm. and then the hardware of course too you could often find that if there was any
2: yeah for sure well, the finding of these old cemeteries and, and neighborhoods and, and evidence of communities that are no longer there is, is forcing the communities that are there now to kinda of come to terms with their, you know, history of racist policies. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that yeah. Targeted
2: targeted these neighborhoods.
1: Yep. Definitely.
2: And you know, this this kind of expansion that can largely be blamed on white people, to be honest. Uh, and I say white people, it's it's really I mean, it is is a racist idea, but it is really the people in power at the time. Yeah. You know, they happen to be white people. And before African-Americans and during the African-American, you know, slave times and then post-slave era, it was African-Americans and Native Americans. Mm -hmm. Like anybody that needed to be moved, they would just move. Mm -hmm. Right. They're just like, listen, we're coming in. We're building a fancy resort and you're getting out. Yeah. You know, and that's just how it is. Yep. I would love to see uh, an alternate timeline or maybe a futuristic timeline where I mean, I hate to promote racism, but man, it would just be interesting to see from somebody's perspective if the tables turned in like 100 years or 200 years. I would like to think that we'd get beyond that kind of thing in 200 years.
1: Yeah. We, but maybe no, we
2: wouldn't. I know, you know. I would
1: hope that the damage done to the current minorities in this country would show that we shouldn't treat anybody that way. Yeah. But that's having a lot of hope in humanity. And yeah. You know, I mean, when it's Christmas Eve, I'm going to have hope, okay? Right. Yeah. Here's, your... here's the hope.
2: <laughs> Christmas Christmas is all about fiction. So,
1: you oh do you. my God. Anyway, you're so bad. <laughs> um,
2: there's a woman named Barbara Sori Love. That's a hyphenated last name. She's a Clearwater native. She was born in the basement of Clearwater's hospital, of course, in the basement. She's African American. 69 years ago, she grew up in Clearwater Heights, which is a neighborhood that no longer exists. Mm hmm. As she says back then, you know they were all called colored people still uh, back in Mm -hmm. the fifties, and she's she's quoted as saying, "That's where the colored mothers and children were housed." It was in Clearwater Heights. Clearwater
1: Heights. Heights. Yeah.
2: Mm. So, were housed too, like not like lived, but were placed.
1: Maybe it was like a like a public housing kind of a thing. I guess. Yeah. Yeah.
2: A few years ago, she helped form the Clearwater Heights Reunion Committee, a group of people that grew up in the neighborhood, and them and officials are basically trying to figure out what to do. I mean, to the mm-hmm. credit of the people who live and govern the area now, they are concerned. They're like, okay, what do we do about this? You know, we can't really tear down the office building and the parking lot. I mean, they could strip up the parking lot, but I mean it's definitely some financial resources that have to be pulled together to be able to do this. But mm-hmm. and and realistically now given the setting, it would be probably unlikely that the cemetery would be reestablished there more likely they'd still have to remove the graves, rebury them somewhere else and yeah. probably put up some kind of a memorial yeah. on the site that, that, that announced that memorializes the people that are there. But that's the other problem is they don't even know who's there. Right. Like it's poorly documented. The church is gone yeah. you know, I don't know where the church records are, but it's all, you know, like what's going on.
1: Yeah. So here's the thing about this situation, having, the original surface being either paved over or having a building built on top of it, mm-hmm. it actually has preserved those oh, graves yeah. way better than just having them under it's the ground true.
2: exposed. They haven't been weathered?
1: No, there's no weather. Yeah. I mean, pavement is a great like protection.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Obviously, I am not a member of this black community and yeah. I don't know how they feel about it. However, from a preservation standpoint, leaving them right where they are and then putting up some kind of memorial so people know that they're there and why they're there and why this building company from the 50s chose to just not move the graves like they were supposed to. That's the real problem. And that should be addressed in some sort of memorial.
2: And that brings up another person involved with this, Antoinette Jackson, who's an anthropologist from the University of South Florida. She helped create the Black Cemetery Network, which is a website and organization that is trying to help link African-American cemeteries that are being rediscovered Mm -hmm. with... Communities that they belonged to.
1: Oh, yeah. And maybe like records from churches and things so that you can know who's actually buried there.
2: Yeah. They want to try to find images of people, stories about them, Mm -hmm. the the people themselves, information about them in the communities that they lived in and put them on the map. Yeah, Yeah. Put them in the public domain. So when you're talking about putting up a memorial... I mean, yeah, you can say here lies an African-American cemetery. We have no idea who's here, Mm -hmm. but it'd be better to say here lies an African-American cemetery and here's all the names of the people that are there. Yeah,
1: that would be amazing. When you you
2: put names and even like faces and and stuff like that and histories to people, it just, the more information you have, the more real it becomes for people in the area. Yeah, definitely. You know, also, it's kind of a good thing it's an office building because- Nobody wants to be living on a burial ground. I don't care who's buried there. Like People just I get would. weird about that. I think
1: that's awesome. I don't know.
2: Poltergeist. So, did you ever see Poltergeist? No. no. Oh, man.
1: I don't like scary movies. I mean, it's not scary. And I don't believe in any of that nonsense well, either. Listen, so
2: Little Girls... And they are demons screaming at you from the white noise on the no, TV.
1: I'm not into that. Like
2: in a suburban Phoenix, I think no, it was. No, there's nothing wrong with that.
1: Not happening. I'm not. I don't need that in my life. It's
2: so bad. I think it was literally built on a Native American burial ground. And like that caused oh, demons the movie? or something. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Something like that. It was really terrible. Oh, man.
1: Wouldn't that be fun to like deconstruct.
2: Like old racist movies. Like, <laughs> yes.
1: From an anthropological perspective. Yeah, totally. Oh, my gosh.
2: All right. Yeah. Next on the APN. Oh, my God. Right. Anyway, there's a bill in Congress right now uh, again there's a lot of stuff tied to this uh, but it's called the uh, it, it's a bill that's trying to create the African American burial grounds network uh, and it would be under the direction of mm. the National Park Service
0: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, actually twice now this bill has gained support and gone through and and tried to get signed i honestly don't know like where it's at right now mm-hmm. and and how that's happening but somebody Uh, affiliated with that with the congressperson that was trying to push this forward because it has to be sponsored by um, I think two congresspersons. Right. And one of their aides reached out to a bunch of networks, and the Archaeology Podcast Network was one of them. And we are signatories to the bill oh, in cool. both ways. That's so, really awesome. Or, or we're sponsors. I don't know what we technically are, but so,
1: we're supporting it. There's a supporting right? letter,
2: yeah. yeah, and then there's logos and names of a bunch of organizations that are part of it, mm-hmm. like Society for American Archaeology is on there. You mm-hmm. know, a bunch of places are on there, and then the APN logos right on there too. So yep. Yeah.
1: That's cool. That's very cool.
2: Yeah. So it sounds like it's gaining steam in a number of different areas locally and nationally, which means, you know, the more visibility you have on that, the more Mm. something's likely to get done. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, we started with landscape modification in Tampa Bay. Let's see how (laughs) Neanderthals modified their landscape in Germany a few years before that.
1: (laughs) Just a couple. (laughs) Back in a minute.
2: You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our Tee Public Store. Head over to arcpodnet.com shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. of the Archaeology Show. Actually, it's after Christmas when you're listening to this, so yes, it is. hopefully you had a great day. You had some eggnog. Oh, we're having eggnog tonight. Yeah, I make homemade are. eggnog every year.
1: Yep. It's delicious. It's great.
2: I didn't make up the recipe. I found it like a decade ago and I've been using it every year since. Yeah, so, it's a good one. Anyway, back to science. <laughs> this article is not an article at all. I, actually, there might be some articles about this if you can find it, but we're linking to the Paper that is open access in mm-hmm. science advances. Yeah. And I will tell you right now... It's meaty. A, it's, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to this. It basically comes to essentially one conclusion, but they really lay out all the evidence towards it. Mm-hmm. And... There is. I would tell you right now, go right to the bottom of the article before the references and download the supplemental information, which include a couple of the figures that are in here, but I think there's a figure or two that aren't in here, and then some tables as well that will help you, because um, actually some of the figures and stuff represent the information, hmm. or, or mention the information that's in the supplemental material.
1: Make it easier to understand, yeah. basically.
2: Yeah, totally. So a little note before we go on, because you know sometimes we share actual scholarly articles, and again, they they can be a little hard to read because they're they're written for a certain audience and that audience is not most of us. Yeah. So, advice that I was given a long time ago that I still follow today is read the abstract. The abstract should tell you the premise behind it, like what what they were trying to do, a little bit about how they did it, and a little bit about what they actually found. Mm-hmm. The abstract is literally the the entire article. Yeah. So you should know All about this by reading that and if you Mm -hmm. want more information you read the article now don't probably start reading at the introduction paragraph one because most articles are written by first laying out the issue what are we trying to find here what's going on and then they'll talk about past research who's already done research in this area yeah and then they'll start talking about their research methods and where they went and then an analysis and discussion of of what they found
1: after they did the research yeah Yeah.
2: that's very jargon-heavy yeah and then at the end they'll usually have some kind of conclusion, although they usually call it either a conclusion or something like that. But this one actually calls it results. I I, I was thinking actually results was more along the lines of analysis of their methods, but Mm -hmm. um, this one calls it results. And the results even is still pretty thick. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there's actually a final, well, it's not results, it's discussion. Discussion is where you need to look if you want to really read what they found as an analysis and a discussion of their yeah. results. Like that's their right.
1: interpretation, basically, yeah. of what they found.
2: I, I was a little confused on this because the final segment is actually called Materials and Methods. What? And and that seems out of place to me. This Discussion is, should be the last one.
1: This is done by a non American company or group of researchers uh, from right? from the Netherlands. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they just but they order follow, their things differently. No, they
2: have to follow the format of wherever well, they're publishing, right? Yeah. They have a certain publication format. Maybe this is Science Direct's way yeah, of doing maybe. it. I don't really know, but it's weird.
1: Either way, all we're saying is you probably don't need to read this. We'll tell you all about it yeah. right now.
2: <laughs> if you want to look at it, what I was getting to is read the abstract, look at the figures and read the figure captions Yeah, and then go straight down to not methods and materials, but the discussion and see if you can read that. Maybe yep. skim it. Yep. Uh, maybe read the last couple of paragraphs of it. If you want to know more information, then continue on and, and read the full article. Mm-hmm. But I don't want you to get disheartened by starting at the beginning and going, I don't understand anything here. And then, you know, not read any of it. So, or just listen to the next eight yeah. or nine minutes of us I was, I was talking say, about. That's
1: it. what I did. And then you read it for me, and then <sighs> you told me all about it. It there was great. There we go.
2: <laughs> so, let's talk about it. We're talking about landscape modification by Neanderthals. Mm-hmm. First off, we do not know much about how Pleistocene, and Pleistocene dates from, my God, what is it, like 12 or so thousand years ago to like 150,000 yeah, years ago? A huge I mean, it's time a massive span, span yeah. of time, yeah. Uh, it's basically a whole time span that is defined by Glacial advances and retreats. Right. Yeah. Uh, all over the world. Mm-hmm. So, well, Northern Hemisphere, anyway. We do not know much about how early hunter gatherer groups, because we didn't really have like band and tribes and, and even state level societies and stuff like that. We didn't really have bands and tribes and stuff like that until, you know, the last eight, nine, 10,000 years. Mm-hmm. And before that, it really was just smaller hunter gatherer groups, right. right? They didn't really organize in that way. So we don't know how they impacted their ecosystems. Right. Did they uh, participate in deforestation? Did they dam up rivers? Did they, you know, how did they affect the landscape in a way that might be seen in the archaeological
1: record? Yeah. It seems like there's a lot of assumptions that it was just like roaming bands of people who never stayed in one place long enough to really have much of an impact. Right. That... And it might be a good assumption, but this article is kind of poking holes in that theory a little bit, which is what made it really interesting.
2: Yeah. And one of the reasons behind this kind of a study is the definition of of the Anthropocene. And -hmm. I mentioned that in this article because the Anthropocene is a geological, geological era that has been... Defined as the time period with which humanity
0: mm-hmm. has
2: been making a permanent impact on the landscape. Right. And and you can look and see or or you, you can supposedly look and see in, in geological layers and say, OK, this is where humans started having an impact. Right. Right. And some of those have been more recently defined as uh, evidence of. Pollution basically from the industrial revolution. Carbon
1: emissions and stuff like that, right? Mid
2: to late 1800s when that really started to to have an impact. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's crazy that you can see that in the geological record in some Mm -hmm. cases, but there's other stuff you can see in the ground as well. And that's what this article is talking about. So,
1: yeah, because the evidence of people having an impact on the geology of the world, I mean, it goes back to basically whenever modern humans started getting bigger Mm -hmm. and and having a bigger impact on their landscape so this article is really interesting because it could potentially push that back even more i don't know if they would change they they being the 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 scientist gods (laughs) i don't know if they would actually change the ending of the pleistocene and in the beginning of the anthropocene yeah anthropocene period but potentially if we know that people are having neanderthals are having a bigger impact on the landscape than we thought then maybe they do need to reanalyze when that
2: starts well and the interesting thing is the pleistocene again is defined by a separate thing uh and the anthropocene would if anything oh like a, overlap maybe yeah be an overlapping yeah, geological yeah, time true. period yeah yeah so okay but we're like this,
1: jumping ahead though we should probably yeah. talk about what this article actually right actually found
2: <laughs> right so what they were found, what looking at was a, a landscape, uh, basically a lake landscape, they called it, in Germany. Mm-hmm. And the place is called Neumark Nord Lake Basin. And uh, you can look in the article to find out exactly where that's at. But what this area is, is it was in an area 125,000 years ago mm-hmm. that, from my best reading of this, looks like it was... Covered in glaciers for a lot of time, but for about an 11,000 year period, there was a glacial retreat and the basin was open mm-hmm. and then the glaciers advanced again and covered it again.
1: Okay.
2: So, or it was uninhabitable mm-hmm. in some way because so, of glaciers.
1: 11,000 years, though.
2: It's that's, an 11,000 year that's, span.
1: That's a pretty long span. Like, that's enough time for stuff a, to happen. A, yeah, for stuff to happen for sure. Yeah.
2: And what did happen was, eventually, Neanderthals, and they think probably other early human groups, because there would have been uh, early humans, they're calling it hominins. If you see hominin in the discussion here, or in the paper, hominin just refers to any homo group, right? right? And homo Neanderthalensis, homo sapiens sapiens, you know, and, and, and actually, to be honest, I think... What is it? Homo, uh, Homo erectus even goes into that time mm-hmm. frame, I think. Uh, and there's some others that are like, there's yeah. Denisovians and there's all kinds of... I don't think they're that old, that young. But anyway, yeah. there's a lot of different things that we don't even know. But human-like groups, mm-hmm. basically, hominins. Anyway... They eventually came into the area. It was a very fertile area. All the glacial areas are uh, because there's a lot of sediment there and it's just a really good place for things to grow and animals would be flocking back to that area, therefore bringing people with them, Mm -hmm. right? Neanderthals or whatever. I'm just going to say people. And there's really solid evidence, archaeological evidence, exemplified by butchered animal bones, over 20,000 stone artifacts, Mm -hmm. and evidence of fire building that lasted a continuous 2,000 years. Yeah. So when people got there... They stayed there for two thousand years, yep. uh, which is an incredibly long time.
1: It's very long. Yeah, yeah. I mean that doesn't even happen in modern worlds. Half, right, half the time, you know.
2: Yeah, so they were looking at all of the ecological evidence around in the area, trying to find out well how can we how can we tell if they had an impact on the landscape? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that was a primary thrust of the study. That's just one of the things that came out about this mm-hmm. when they're doing all their studies. And one of the ways they were able to do this is by looking at. Ancient lake cores uh, from the lake is there. And the lake cores, well, the layers that you can see in a lake core are called varves. And it's V-A-R-V-E-S. And varves are basically laid down seasonally when, uh, you know, rain... Rain basically has and and dust and, and normal things has little particulates of you know dirt sand and sediment, you know whatever yeah. sediments mm-hmm. uh, and it lays on the surface of the lake and then falls down to the lake bottom and there's a lot more of including pollen mm-hmm. and there's a lot more of that obviously in the spring and summer than say the fall in the winter mm-hmm. so that really thick layer that gets laid down. Uh, then gets seasonally, seasonally yeah. right? Then settles over the winter when less stuff falls, mm-hmm. and then another layer goes on top of it. Mm-hmm. And the next year, another layer goes on top of it, and you end up with this stratigraphy that's so basically cool. every year.
0: That
1: is so cool.
2: Yeah, so I never
1: even thought about that. But of course, you see stuff blowing into yeah. the lake or settling on the lake. If you just think about, you know, going going to a modern lake now, you'd I'm see sure. that happening. So that is so cool.
2: Yeah. So they took these these layers of varves from these cores. And using various techniques, and they really go in depth with it in the paper, but using various techniques, they were able to line up these seasonal sequences with actual time periods mm-hmm. and these pollen sequences, looking at you know different species of, of plants and trees, mm-hmm. um, doing some actual dating and doing some stuff. They were able to line it up with, with the sequence of time that, that actually this fits. And then they started looking at the actual areas where humans were living right there and the areas outside of that. Mm -hmm. And by making a comparison in the trees and the pollen and the vegetation, they were able to pretty clearly state that A, humans were burning fires pretty much continuously that Mm -hmm. whole time. And B, to burn those fires, they cut down all the forests. Yeah. Yeah. So the whole place was basically deforested to a point that they could tell it was deforested because there was less
1: pollen basically in those layers. Yeah. Okay. So here's my question. Is it possible that there were natural fires that were doing this and it wasn't human created?
2: Uh, I would say yes, theoretically. Mm-hmm. But when you don't see that in the other 8,000 eight yeah. or 9,000 years and you see it dramatically during a 2,000 year span.
1: When you know humans were when there When you too. know humans were yeah, there yeah. and you
2: can correlate that with their tools and other yeah. identified artifacts. Yeah. That's pretty clear that humans caused it.
1: Yeah. That's, you know? that's a really good point. Yeah.
2: So they take all these lines of evidence and that's what that's what real archaeology does, I think. Archaeology is just one facet of anthropology, and it's one part of the science that is really the digging and the finding of things. And then that synthesis, bringing it all together, and this multidisciplinary study is what really makes a good a good research paper and a, and a good analysis. Because, you know, like we do archaeology, but we try to come up with all these you know, things, and we say this stuff on site records, but to be honest, there's so many more pieces to the puzzle that we just don't have, yeah. and you need to bring in other people if you really want to tell a story.
1: Yeah, like if you're really trying to draw conclusions from an archaeological dig, you need so many more pieces of information to support the conclusion that you're getting to, the story that you're telling, and, yeah. and a lot of it is geological. I don't think archaeologists spend enough time on, on learning about the geology a lot no. of times, so... Yeah, but the geology and and all that is so, so important, as this paper is showing, because I never would have even thought about looking at layers of pollen in a lake bed. That is so cool.
2: Yeah, it's pretty neat. Yep. There's a lot of stuff they can tell by looking at the varves. um, The varves. The varves.
1: Yeah, varves are my new favorite thing. I feel like that's
2: like a punk band or something, (laughs) the varves. (laughs) The varves.
1: (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's really neat.
2: Anyway, super cool. Check out the paper. Uh, You might be able to search the headline of the paper and find some... More popular articles have been written about it that kind of do a a, a more distilled synthesis of the research. But a lot of cool things in there. So. Well, I think that's it for this week mm-hmm. and this year. This is our last episode of 2021.
1: Oh my God, it totally is. Yeah, because yep. our next
2: episode, hopefully you're listening to us on a nice, calm Sunday morning and your your hangover should be mostly gone by then because it's the 2nd. <laughs>
1: because it's January 2nd. Yeah. 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 So
2: hopefully you're doing all right. You're starting 2022 off with the Archaeology Show uh-huh. and uh, kicking it into high gear.
1: Yep, so. definitely.
2: All right. Well, hopefully you had a... Good Christmas if you celebrate that or you just had a great Saturday if you don't. Mm-hmm. And we'll see you in 2022. Adios. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.arcpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at archpodnet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. And was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks?